Good morning. Let me adjust the camera real quick. Adjust the camera real quick. Not that it matters for anybody who's watching online because half the time they're staring at a podium with nobody there because I walk around so much, but as have several people have told me, but at least they can still hear the Word of God, right? In any case, uh, we are jumping back into Acts chapter 26 this morning. We've been out of Acts chapter 26 for a number of weeks because of Good Friday and Easter and Palm Sunday. And uh, last week we were looking at uh, a a more of a topical message. And so what I'd like to do today in our study in Acts chapter 26, we've been looking at the passage, uh, Acts 26, verses 12 through 18, specifically um, verses 15 to 18 pretty extensively. And I told you we were going to slow down dramatically as we worked our way through that section. We have. We've looked at an overview of 15 through 18. We have looked at uh, 15 and 16. We looked at that word, a point. Um, And now what I'd like to do this morning is wrap up this little section of 15 to 18 by zeroing in on verse 18 itself. So we're going to be in in 26.18 this morning. I'm going to read from 12 through 18 to remind you of what the text is all about. Paul is in, in front of King Agrippa and he's giving his defense. This is like the third or fourth defense he's given so far. And uh, as he presents his defense before Agrippa, this is what he says. In this connection, I journeyed, he's telling his testimony first, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And that's our that last verse is the verse we're looking at this morning. It is um, it is the conclusion, if you could say it this way, it is the conclusion of Paul's description of his commission. The commission starts obviously; it's introduced in verse fifteen. And then in verse 16, it, it brings, uh, God brings more light in verse 16 to what the, what the commission is, fleshed out even more in 17, and then culminating in verse 18. So we're going to focus on verse 18 this morning um, of, the, of the commission uh, of Paul, Saul in this case, later Paul, uh, to the Gentiles and God's commission upon him. What is interesting about the commission in verse 18, and the reason why I want to go there, several reasons why I want to go there. Uh, number one thing that's very interesting about the commission of Paul, Saul, then Paul, um, in verse 18 is the passage Tom read this morning in Luke 4 very strongly is the same commission that God the Father has for Jesus. I don't know if you picked up on that, but it's very much the same commission. So in other words, the commission that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 4 is the commission that carries on over into Acts chapter 26 description Acts 9 the when he truly when, when he first came to faith in Christ this is not revealed the specifics of this are not revealed till here interestingly enough even in Jesus commission that he describes in Luke chapter 4 the focus is not upon in that commission not upon Je- Jews is it even in Luke's, uh, Luke chapter 4, Luke's description of Jesus' commission, the focus is upon the Gentiles. And it's important that we see that. So it's the same commission that, G, that, that Paul receives here. Interestingly enough, Jesus' commission in Luke chapter 4 is mentioned 
several times, at least four times in the book of Isaiah. Almost verbatim. And then there's other places in Isaiah that allude to it. Which means that Jesus' commission, stated four times in the book of Acts, in the book of, I'm sorry, the book of Isaiah, alluded to other times, is to be seen as Paul's commission, mentioned four times and alluded to. Now, the commission mentioned in Isaiah is on Jesus. But Jesus made very clear that his followers would do what? His followers, generally speaking, would be doing what? They will receive power, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and what? They'll be my witnesses or witnesses of me, right? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the end of the earth, right? Yes, absolutely. Paul's commission is very tightly worded to Jesus' commission, I would argue that so is ours. So is ours. Paul's commission is no different in its general, general nature than ours is. Just as Paul said that God has spent, sent a spirit of stupor on the Jewish people to this day, there are some exceptions, right? But he has sent the stupor on them to this day. Why? So that, Why? The gospel would go to the Gentiles, right? To the ends of the earth. Absolutely. And so in a very real way, the call to you and I is the same as we see to the call, the commissioning of Jesus and the commissioning of Paul. Now, it should not be surprised that that is the case, right? If, as, as Charles just said, how'd you put it, Charles? Yeah, his followers, his followers will follow him. So if Jesus' commission is in the in the text of Luke 4, the commission to, to bring light to the blind and all the rest of that, well, then you would expect, wouldn't you, that those who follow him would have the same commission. Wouldn't that make sense? It would not make much sense to have a totally different commission. So Jesus' commission is to bring light to darkness, but your commission is to fix cars or, or to meet felt needs, whatever the case may be. It would be a weird change if his commission is this, and if we are to be like Christ, and we are, aren't we? To be like Christ, then it should be expected that the commission that Jesus received and demonstrated as being the same commission that Saul received should be the same commission that it would be expected that all followers, true followers of Jesus, would receive. And lo and behold, that's exactly what we discover. So with that in mind, let's look at the final culmination of Saul's commission as he describes it to Agrippa. Because the, the description he gives in verse 18, I would argue, is really, really important. I wish I could think of better ways to say that. Extremely important. How about that? How about of supreme importance? Can you think of anything better than that, Tom? Preeminent importance. There you go. <laughs> Got to have an English guy to help you out with these things. Yeah. So let me read verse 18 again. I know it starts the middle of a sentence. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You could, you could argue that the text of verse 18 could be seen as, it could be described as, or labeled as, titled as, I'm not saying you have to use this title in, in, online. From and to. Because that's the theme of the book. I'm sorry, of the verse. From and to. The commission that Jesus received was a from and to commission. We know that, right? From darkness to light, for example. We know here in this text, verse 18, that Saul's commission was a from and to commission. Correct? It's very clear here, and we're going to break it apart, and you're going to see it in pieces in just a little bit. I would argue that all true followers of Christ's commission, now follow me on this, I would argue is twofold. On the one hand, it is, in our ministry to a lost and dying world, it is a from and to call, right? 
That's what we see in verse 18. I would argue, working out of this text, it is not just a call from and to outward facing, but it is also a from and to inward facing. It is both. But let's work our way through this, if I may. Because the primary is an outward facing from and to. I'm going to go back to verse um, 16 and, and read the whole thing so we get the context once again. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have a, and, and he says, this is the reason why you should stand on your feet, verse 16, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, which we already talked about, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me in me and to do those things in which I will appear to, I'm sorry, and to, and to those in which I will appear to you. I'm going to just pause that for a second to give the context into verse 18 since we haven't been in here for a while. I want you to notice that this appointment, the purpose and appointment we've talked about two or three weeks ago is, you'll notice first in verse 16, it's an active appointment, isn't it? You see that? It's an active appointment. This is not a passive appointment at all, is it? It's very much active. By the way, could I just say this? This idea of, of just being a good, living a good life because that shows Christ, that doesn't work here, does it? It doesn't fit at all, does it? Not at all. This is a very active commission, verse 16. I've, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And then he goes on and makes it even more active, delivering you from your people. So he's going to show what God's going to do in his life, the things he just talked about. From your people and from the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. But then we come to verse 18. He's sending him. What's his purpose? What's this, what's this objective? What is the commission? Here it is. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And I just want to pause as we talk about the verse in its overview before we break down the specific pieces. It's very easy for us theologically to look at this and say, whoa, wait a second, back up the horses. Isn't that a Holy Spirit work alone? Is it your job or my job to open people's eyes? Can we possibly do that? The answer is no. Dead is dead and I cannot make a dead person alive. And nor can you. Spiritually speaking, we cannot do that. At all. But yet, what does Jesus on the road to Damascus tell Saul in verse 18? I'm commissioning you, as it were. I'm appointing you to go to the Gentiles, end of verse 17, to open their eyes so they will see. Or so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. So they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What do we do with this? He's saying that the commissioners do something that he can't do. He's saying that Jesus told him to do something that we know theologically throughout the Scriptures, this is only something that the Holy Spirit can do. Man cannot do this. Man cannot have a hope of doing any of the things that, says, that is said in verse 18. I can't open their eyes. I can't turn them from darkness. I can't turn them to light. I can't grant them forgiveness. I can't make them sanctified. But Saul says that's his commission. <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? That's not just daunting. Is it? It's impossible. It's not hard. It's like trying to run a marathon with no legs. And your heart's not working. And you have no lungs. How's that going to work out? It's not going to happen. 
So what in the world is Saul talking about that Jesus said to him? Verse 18. Well, the answer to that, I would argue, is simply summed up. I could say it this way. The Scriptures are very clear about something. A couple things, actually. Here it is. Ready? Number one, God is omnipotent. What does that mean? All-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, right? He can accomplish what He wants to accomplish, right? And not only can He, but He, he always will. Will He not? Always. But you know, oftentimes... God does something very interesting. For example, let me just use this as an example. Today, if God wanted to, I know that he said he will never destroy the world again with a flood. I get that. But that was just with a flood. But if God wanted to today, if it was in his plan today, could he destroy the world? Could he do it by himself? Of course he could. In Noah's day, could he destroy the world then? Of course he could, and he did. Could he have done it by himself? No, he didn't. He did, but he didn't. Follow me on this. How did God destroy the world? He used rain, correct? He used a storm. He used rain. You know what the storm and the rain is? And also the the, the springs came up too, right? Right? You know what that all is? God is using His creation, or to put it more generally, He's using means to accomplish His ends, correct? Now, why is He doing that? Because He can't do it by Himself? No. He's all-powerful. We just established that. The Scriptures are really clear. But He, in that day, when the flood started and the spring started pouring, He, by His design, by His plan, chose to do it by way of means. And he chose the means by which he was going to accomplish his ends of destroying the world. Could he have, let me change the scenario, could God have saved mankind apart from sending his son to die? I'm not talking about, please follow me now, I'm not talking about, I know it was ordained from before the foundation of the world, but if he ordained a different way, could he have done that? It was part of his plan to do it a different way. Could he have done that? Yeah, he's, he's omnipotent, right? And, and, and uh, um, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's on all those. He's omniscient. He could have planned a totally different way. But once again, what did he do? For example... He sent his son. Now, his son's not just a mere means, but could we argue that the Roman soldiers were means? Could we, or could, we, could we argue that the nails that were used on his hands and feet were means? Could we argue the whip was means? Could we argue that the wood of the cross was means? And the thorns, the crown of thorns, and all the rest, and even the sign overhead. Could we not argue that that was all means? And it was the means that God ordained to have it happen, correct? Does that make sense? He oftentimes uses means. On the other hand, he could just speak and all of a sudden what would happen? The entire, going back to the flood, he could have just spoken and everything could have ceased to exist. Correct? Because he holds everything together, right? All things exist because he holds it together. So he could have just spoken and it would have ended. Or he could have just spoken and all mankind except for Noah and his family would have dropped over dead. Or not even just dropped over dead, just ceased to exist. Like vanished, gone. Could he not? He is God. But he chooses means. In the same way, God has chosen in this text a means. So although Saul, later Paul, could not in a million, billion, however many years ever hope to do what? To open the eye, their eyes, etc., of those who are dead. He could not absolutely hope in a billion years, an infinite amount of years to do that. 
God has chosen him to be a means whereby what would happen? Saul would what? He would bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dead, blind enemy. Correct? And the Spirit would use the gospel proclaimed. And the result would be in God using that means that He doesn't have to use, right? We already established that. He would use that means to cause some people's eyes to the, for the first time to be able to see, correct? Does that make sense so far? That's what it means when it says that God has commissioned him, has appointed him, Saul, to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Could I just pause on that for a second and just tell you again, remind you what we already said? This is not merely Saul's commission. I want to remind you this is a commission to all children of God. This is all those that are truly saved, this is God's commission. Could God do it without us? Of course He could. Does He need me for His children that He's ordained to be saved to receive the Gospel and have their eyes open? Does He need me? No. But in His gracious mercy, He has ordained that you and I have this amazing privilege this stunning privilege. We who were once lost, once were dead, once had no eyes to see, once who were not forgiven, God has ordained us. He's commissioned you and I to have the most amazing privilege in the world. To proclaim the victor. Does that make sense? That's what it means. Did Christ have victory over sin, Satan, and death? Absolutely. Was it complete? Yes. What does Matthew 28 say? All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And right after that he says what? So therefore, as you're going, make disciples. You know what he's saying? You have the unique privilege and honor to be able to proclaim the victor. To be a proclaimer of the victory. Because that's what, that's what telling the gospel is, isn't it? I want you to think about this for a second. Let's just say, for example, that you were a big fan of some MMA fighter. Just throwing it out there. And the MMA fighter that you're a big fan of got into the cage with his enemy, as it were. And the, the bell rang. And those two warriors went to war. And your guy that you're a big fan of absolutely devastated the enemy. And he, and he got the belt. And he's the world champion. Could I ask you a question? If you're a big fan of that person, would you really be uncomfortable celebrating? Would you really feel uncomfortable celebrating? Would you be really quiet about it? Let me ask you this. Would you be ashamed? Would you make excuses? Would you try to minimize? Try to change the subject? Try to avoid talking about it? You can go on and on with that one, right? And the answer for all those is what? Of course not. But you know what's really wild about my illustration? There's a high likelihood the next time he's going to get in the ring, what's going to happen? He's going to get the stuffing beat out of him. He's going to lose the belt, right? 
And he's going to lose the title, isn't he? It's highly likely that's going to happen, isn't it? Yet we still, even in loss, what will we do? Ah! The refs were on the other guy's side. The guy cheated. And we're still doing what? We're still proclaiming the gospel of our guy, aren't we? Even though he got pummeled. He got destroyed. We're still unashamed, aren't we? It's weird. We're still unashamed. I mean, I, I grew up in Chicago. And there's a team in Chicago by the name of the Chicago Cubs. What'd you say? Blackhawks, yeah. The Chicago Cubs. How many years did they go without getting to the pennant and winning? 108, was it? 108 years. And you know what? All 108 years, you know what Chicago Cubs fans were like? Maybe this year. <laughs> Maybe this year. And one year, they thought they were really going to get there. And a fan reached over the, over, over, what's that? Over the railing, and he, and he grabbed the ball, and they lost the game. Didn't they? You probably remember their na- the guy's name still, don't you, Tom? Steve Bartram. There you go. And you think he's famous here. My goodness, in Chicago, he had to move out of the city. Everybody hated him. 108 years, and yet the fans are still out of control. Go Cubs! Now, of course, they won the, the World Series. But you get the point, right? It doesn't make any sense to be a Cubs fan. <laughs> it really does. I'm glad Matt's not here today, although he's probably watching. <laughs> he's probably making comments right now online. <laughs> Does it make much sense? No, but they still are. But you know what? If I may use the illustration, Jesus went into the cage, didn't he? Didn't he? He destroyed sin and Satan and death, didn't he? And it wasn't, there is no opportunity for sin, Satan, and death to go back into the cage and fight him. Do you realize that? you realize that? Ever. Ever. Sin, Satan, and death have been conquered. Oh, there's ultimate judgment yet to come. But sin, Satan, and death have been vanquished. Redemption realized. Accomplished. Amen? And the commission that Saul receives is the same commission that Jesus received. And I would argue it's the same commission that every single true believer also receives. And notice what it is. And it's being the means. That's the idea. Notice the means. The means he's describing. What is the means that's going on here? It's him, but what is he doing as a means? Verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. And there's the first from two. To open their eyes. Now how does Saul possibly open their eyes? By proclaiming the Gospel. By trumpeting the victor. Right? By trumpeting the victor. And describing and explaining biblically that the victor has a plan not just for his victory, but for the effects of his victory as well. Correct? And that the effects of his victory are upon people. And so Saul's commissioning is to open people's eyes by the only thing he can do, right? And that is to proclaim the victory. Making disciples. And in so doing... The implication throughout the rest of the Scripture, not just the implication, the clear teaching I would argue through the rest of the Scripture is for some, God takes that means of the proclamation by His redeemed children to unredeemed children to cause some of them to have their eyes what? 
open so that the first time by the Spirit they see the reality and the truth of the redemption. And that seeing with spiritual eyes has dramatic effects. And we see that here in verse 18. To open their eyes so that, that's the goal, the purpose, so that they may turn from darkness to light. I want to pause in this for a second. We're going to see this pattern throughout the rest of the text. To turn from darkness, so that they may turn from darkness to light. First thing you need to notice, when it says so that they may see, so that they may turn, is not what you think so that they may turn means. We hear Ken needs directions, so I give him directions to some place, and I give him the directions to turn right on 724, and I give him the directions to turn right on 724 so that he may turn right on 724. Correct? Does that mean he has to turn right on 724? No, he could go straight. <laughs> Rerouting. <laughs> yeah, your GPS does it for you all the time, right? Or he could turn left. Or he could go nowhere and just sit in his car and, and hold on the steering wheel and make little kid noises. Right? He can do anything he wants to do, right? That's what we think may means. It doesn't mean that here. If their eyes are open, that may means they will. If their eyes are opened, the Word of God, the Gospel proclaimed, the victory proclaimed, if eyes are open... It's so that they may turn. The, the implication being is that they do. Because who resists God's will? No one does. So that they may turn. And the key in this first from two, so that they may turn from darkness to light is very much both the idea of, we understand light and darkness, right? When you got up in the morning, if you got up before first light, the first thing you did is do what? Turn the lights on. You move from darkness to light. You understand that, right? But he's not talking about it that way. He's not talking about physically, of course. He's talking spiritually, and I would argue he's very much talking about, and the reason why I say this is because you find it throughout the entirety of the New Testament, he's talking about kingdoms. That's what he's talking about. So that they may, with their eyes open, turn from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So that they may turn from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, they can't do, right? It must be the Spirit at work in them to cause that to happen. Correct? It must be. But when the Spirit is at work, guess what happens? And this is where it becomes really interesting. When the Spirit is at work in someone's life, what happens? They do what? Turn from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Just in this first statement, do you get the idea this idea of believing where you're not transformed is not biblical? Especially understand that there are only two kingdoms, correct? Or maybe a little farm. That's all it is. There's only two kingdoms. If there's only two kingdoms, if you leave one kingdom, by definition, what? You've got to be in the other. Correct? You cannot leave one kingdom. There's no no man's land. There's no demilitarized zone. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. And I hear this all the time. That somehow you can be saved but not exhibit. Kingdom of light stuff. Is that possible? I mean, according to some theology, it's really possible. I just want you to stop and think about this for a second. Who's God? Because God's the king, right? Of the kingdom of God, right? He's, a, he's, he's God. Is he holy or is he not? Holy. I mean, these are things that basic teachings of the scripture, right? Can he tolerate evil? No. Is he omnipotent? 
if he can't tolerate, if he's God and he's kingdom, king of the kingdom, and if it's his kingdom, and it is, and if, he, if he's holy and he can't tolerate sin, and if he's omnipotent, I'm sorry, if he's omnipotent, guess what he's going to do in people who have left the kingdom of darkness because the Spirit has moved them out of the kingdom of darkness? What? Empower them for change. So that they will do what? They will start to look like what? The kingdom of light. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. This is radical. Because I hear too many people claim to be Christians. They claim that they're a follower of God, but people, other Christians look at their life and they see what? Nothing. Now, we're not on the throne. Freely acknowledge. Right? But you expect God to take, if He's really omnipotent, and if He really loves the ones He rescues, You'd expect him, wouldn't you? And the scriptures teach this. You'd expect them to, be, to make those people to be light kind of people, right? Wouldn't you expect that? Wouldn't you expect if he gives us a new heart, that new heart would be a heart that's after the things of the one who gave us the new heart? Would that not make sense? And lo and behold, the scriptures teach that. Throughout the New Testament it teaches that, doesn't it? God teaches us that. And he says here, I'm sending you, Saul, and I would argue he's saying I'm sending all believers for the same thing. I'm sending you to open their eyes by the proclamation of the truth of the victory of Jesus Christ and all the ramifications of that victory so that they may turn from darkness to light. Now he goes on from there and expands it or makes the same thought much more potent, much more powerful. When he says, and from the power of Satan to God. Now I'm going to add a word or two into that statement to make it more clear to you. What he's really saying is this, and to turn in, and from the power of Satan to the power of God. He just doesn't repeat the word power there twice for literary reasons, but that's the idea. I'm not taking liberties with the text. It's not power of Satan to, to God with no power. When we are in our natural state, we are in the kingdom of Satan. More kingdom stuff here, right? And we are under the power of the king of that kingdom. Does that make sense? If I'm in that kingdom, I'm under the power and authority of that king. And as long as I'm in that kingdom, that king has power over me to keep me in a certain way. Right? He has a power to keep me faithful to his rulership. Right? And the king will tolerate no rebellion correct but according to the scriptures when god rescues people from the kingdom of darkness from the kingdom of satan he overcomes the power of that kingdom and the power of that king does that make sense that makes sense? And why does he do that? How can he possibly do that? Well, when we're talking about the Godhead, the Trinity, the Trinitarian God, what do we know about the Trinitarian God? There, God is what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and, and omnipotent, right? Omnipotent, which means that he's more powerful than the king of the kingdom of darkness, Satan. He's more powerful. But on top of that, we have what? We have the clear again declaration of Matthew 28 because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, right? It is so clearly proclaimed that sin, Satan, and death now have what? No power over his children. And so the all-powerful one rescues people from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, and just sets them free to be whoever they want to be, right? 
No. Yeah, to be the best they can be, right? Or the worst. Doesn't matter. He just rescued them from the kingdom of Satan, right? No. He rescues, according to this text, this text, he rescues them from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. Or from the power of Satan to what? The power of God. Or under the control of and authority of the power of God. That's a stupendous thing, isn't it? That is a stunning thing that God does, doesn't He? I want you to notice, Saul's the means in the text, isn't he? He's the means of all this. But his mean, he, he, he being the means is only because he's proclaiming these things the Spirit uses them, right? And so the result of his ministry is something amazing is going to happen. People's eyes are going to be opened, right? Now we know the story of Paul. We're up to chapter 26. Most times, was that a really successful ministry from human standpoints? No, it was horribly unsuccessful, wasn't it? But from God's standpoint, how successful was it? Out of all the Father gives Jesus what? He loses none. How successful is Paul's ministry as the means? 100%. 100% of the people God ordained to have their eyes opened. What happened to their eyes? In the proclamation of the Word. What happened? Their eyes were opened. So that, how, what, what percentage were rescued from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? All of them. And how many were rescued from the power of Satan to the power of God? 100%. It's amazing, isn't it? And once again, I'm just going to pause on it before I move on just a little bit, and I want you to notice <clears throat> that there are too many people who claim to be believers. Too many who claim to be believers who are cool with the idea of being out from underneath the power of Satan, but they're not very cool with the idea of being under the power of God. And it calls into question something, doesn't it? Wouldn't it? I think it calls dramatically into question. Because there's only two kingdoms once again, right? So if you're not in the kingdom of Satan, that means you must be in the kingdom of God. If you're not in the, in, under the power of Satan, you must therefore be under the power of God. So it sounds to me like there's no other alternatives here. And I think it's important we see that. He goes on, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place for those, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So he says to, to, to Saul in Acts chapter 9, and Paul's just telling the story here, that Jesus commissioned me, appointed me, so that I would preach the gospel, proclaim Christ, and so that they, the recipients whose eyes have been opened, will do what? Receive forgiveness of sins, which, by the way, what is implied in the statement that they receive forgiveness of sins? Number one, that they're a sinner, and there's an acknowledgement that they're a sinner, right? What else is implied? They need a Savior, that's right. Yep, what else is, is implied? Well, that's coming yet, but yes, there'll be witnesses, yes, but what else? That they'll repent, right? The clear, I mean, you're not going to receive forgiveness of sins unless you repent, Right? Yeah, well, the admittance is part of the repentance. It's the first step of, of, of repentance, right? But if you're not asking for forgiveness, you're not repenting of your sins, God doesn't forgive, does He? No. It's clearly taught. Luke 17, a variety of other places, it's clearly taught in the Scriptures that forgiveness comes when one repents and believes, right? Now, of course, the repentance is caused by the Holy Spirit. It's not that I repent and therefore the Holy Spirit works. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. He makes me alive, so therefore, He gives me the faith to believe, so therefore I do what? I repent and believe. Yes. No, if I'm not regenerated, I cannot repent and believe. There's no question. 
So really strong implications to this statement that they may receive forgiveness. They're receiving forgiveness because their eyes have been opened and their eyes have been opened because the Spirit is at work moving in them. So they may receive forgiveness of sins. Wow, if that's not a declaration of victory, huh? And evidence that, that, that the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Satan, the power of Satan has been broken. They're forgiven for all that. Amen? It's awesome. Boy, if that doesn't want to make you want to proclaim, that doesn't make you want to shout victory, if that makes you, if that, if that puts you in a position where you're not real excited about being led in triumphal procession, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we need to talk. Right? That they may receive forgiveness of sins and there's no from to here. The only from is, is implied, isn't it? Forgiveness of sins, you're being forgiven from your sins. There's the implica- implication of from, but to forgiveness of sins, which means you are, so you're being taken from filth, right? To purity, right? To being purified, right? Does that make sense? That's what forgiveness is. And, so it's a twofold two, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now that's an interesting statement because that's a positional sanctification. The, as we talked about when we went through the text before, the progressive sanctification flows out of the positional sanctification. Yes. In glorification, that, well, that some people would argue, and I think it fits in here, that this text is talking also about that. It's including that. that. That final sanctification where it's finally brought to perfection, our, our glorification. So I think it's talking about a positional now, but which will culminate ultimately in the absolute perfection that is yet to come. Because in this time, we are positionally sanctified, right? We are. But at the same time, we're progressively still growing in our love and knowledge and response to the gospel, are we not? That's progressive sanctification. There's a positional sanctification that is a placed in and remain in type of perspective. And it involves being given the righteousness of Christ. But then there's a progressive sanctification that's ongoing the rest of our lives that will finally culminate in glorification when we go to be with Jesus and we will be with all the others who have been made perfect and no longer sin has any way or role in us. That is yet to come. So it's a from two two here. You get that? The last one's a from two two. So in this commission, we have an amazing description of the results of the gospel, do we not? Don't we? It's a, it is probably one of the most poignant and powerful descriptions of the gospel and the effects of the gospel you will find anywhere. In one short verse. It's all in this from two, from two, from two, from two, two. Not that you wear a two, two. But you get the picture. It's stunning. Could I just say this? I hope so. If I can't, I'm going to say it anyway. The commission of Saul that we see here, the purpose for Saul's life that we see here is the purpose, the commission that Jesus received. And it is the commission that all true believers have. And you know where that will flow from for all true believers? I would present to you that it obviously flows through the Spirit and from the Spirit. It's all caused by the Spirit. Because as we started in the very beginning, I can't do it and you can't do it by ourselves, right? It's impossible. But I would submit to you, just as we said in the beginning, that God uses means one of his great means that he uses, that he's always used, that he will always use, the sight of glory, is his working in my life. And his working in your life. Does that make sense? 
What I mean by that is I don't mean, you know, we, got, we, we just got to live the life and people will see it and be saved. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's really an empty message, isn't it? It's a grotesquely empty message. It's a grotesquely useless message. Now, I understand God used Balaam's ass. He can use anyone, right? And I, I, I accept that. I agree with that. But it's weird. It would be absolutely weird and bizarre if this commission of Saul to the Gentiles would not be something that's going on in his own life. Wouldn't it be weird? Wouldn't it be strange? Could God do that? Of course, he's omnipotent, right? Again, he used Balaam's ass. But it would be really weird, wouldn't it? I mean, certainly he's used people who are unsaved who thought they were saved to present the gospel to people who got saved, right? I mean, we have the, I, I don't know much, I don't know anything about the people who were doing it in, in Paul's day, but in Philippians, there were people who were preaching with bad intents, right? But they were preaching the true gospel, and so people were getting saved, right? And Paul rejoiced that the gospel was being preached, wasn't he? But it's weird, isn't it? You read that verse in chapter 1, is that not weird? It's absolutely not normative. Not at all. God's way for Saul is that the same thing that Saul is commissioned to do is what is happening in him. Does that make sense? So, then we have to ask, we have to ask the question, is this happening in Saul's life? Do we see it in Saul's life that he is come out of the, of the darkness and into the light? Is that evident? Really evident or just, eh, if you look hard enough, you may see it. It's really evident, isn't it? How about from the power of Satan to the power of God? Is that pretty evident in Saul and later Paul? Pretty obvious? From sin to forgiveness of sins into a place of sanctification? Is that evident in Saul's life, later Paul? Really evident or mar marginally evident? Really evident, isn't it? What's that? Even to this day. So, but wait a second. Let's pause for a second. How about Judas? Was it evident in Judas's life for a while? Yeah. I mean, even, at the, even, even at, at, at the Last Supper, none of the other 11 figured it out, did they? They never figured out Judas was who he was, did they? Demas. Was it evident in Demas' life for a while? Well, yeah. He ministered alongside Paul, who is this. Did he not? But did it remain? No. He left Paul. Why? Because he loved this present world. The entire church in Asia. They do pretty good. Being in a church. They're studying the Word. They've received Paul's Gospel. But then the entire church in Asia leaves them. Pretty crazy, isn't it? And I'm reminded again, the Scriptures tell us what? He who perseveres to the end will be saved. Right? And the only reason why we persevere to the end is why? Because the Spirit of God is persevering in us. Because if He truly is opening our eyes, then these things truly are in play. Aren't, not in play, but are happening, aren't they? So, a challenge, Right? That's why Paul says to the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see if you're of the faith. But also a really important encouragement because the way Paul describes the text here, and I love the way he describes the text, this commissioning, this appointment, 
It's a beautiful statement. It's a statement of recognition because his eyes are open of the glory, of the true glory of Jesus Christ, is it not? His focus is not on what I got to do. His focus is on what? Christ. He even said it elsewhere in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, the love of Christ controls me. Didn't he say that? So he said, the love of Christ controls me. It's not, well, I got to do it, so I better do it. I'm guilt, I feel, I'm, I'm guilt-ridden, so I better do this. No, the point that Paul gives us throughout the Scriptures is what? I see the victory because my eyes have been opened. I understand by the Spirit the victory that Christ has accomplished because all authority has been given to my Redeemer. Matthew 28. He entered the cage and won the battle for all time. How can I but proclaim Him? That's the picture Paul gives. Isn't it? That's clearly it. And the whole statement in verse 18 is based upon He's going to open their eyes because and you, got, you can't miss this. It's not because he's been appointed primarily. That's secondary. He's going what? Well, yeah, but he's going, he's going to open... I'm talking about Paul, Saul. He's going to open people's eyes. Why? Because he loves God. Why? Yeah, and open his eyes. Right? He's going to open others' eyes because his eyes have been opened. And if his eyes have been opened, he sees Christ high and lifted up, as Isaiah described it, doesn't he? He sees Christ high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. And he hears the seraphim, or the cherubim, whichever one it is, screaming out, singing out, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Amen? Amen? And they're, they're, they're proclaiming the same things that in glory in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 4, is the same thing that's being proclaimed in glory. And he's in that in-between state, is he not? Or to use a different illustration, the angels outside of Bethlehem proclaimed what? Glory to God in the highest. In glory, in Revelation chapter 4, they're proclaiming what? Glory to God in the highest. And all sorts of other words. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And in between those two, in this already not yet time frame, God is moving in some people's lives so that their eyes are opened and they're starting to respond as if they're already in Revelation chapter 4. Do you realize that? This, and it's all by the Spirit. And He's moving in His children's lives so that for His children, th the love of Christ is controlling them so that they're already beginning the chorus of what is being proclaimed in Revelation chapter 4. You could turn there as a matter of fact. You see, the time between when we come to faith in Christ and we go to glory, you know what it is? It's practice time. You know, every Thursday, the Cartlidges and Ganella and I get together to practice the music. And it's not always pretty. In fact, most times for us on Sundays, it's not always pretty. But that's a whole other issue. <clears throat> but we practice. Looking forward to Sunday morning when we get to sing with you all. Well, this is what this is. We're in practice time. And what's coming is, and we sang it this morning, holy, holy, 
holy, verse 8, is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you've created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5, worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In verse 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And verse 13, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the passage in chapter 5 concludes with, and the four living creatures said Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. That's what's going on in glory. And in this already not yet time frame, we are here doing what? We're warming up. And we're practicing. Proclaiming the glory of Jesus. It doesn't, if I may say this, it doesn't make any sense that we would not warm up here and expect to sing there. That makes no sense. And it certainly doesn't make biblical sense. It's incoherent with the Scriptures that we would be not warming up here, not practicing what is yet to come here, and think we're actually going to be singing the praises of God in glory. It makes no sense. At all. But, for those whose eyes truly have been opened, you know what's happening here on this earth in this already not yet time frame? Those people are warming up. Those people are practicing. But I want to remind you, that's by the Holy Spirit. That's not, I got to do it. Because I just got to do it. That's not love of Christ controlling us. That is, the one I love is victorious. The one I am enthralled by is absolutely victorious. He has absolutely conquered it all. He has absolutely set me free. He has absolutely re rescued me from darkness into light. He has absolutely rescued me from the power of Satan unto the power of God. He has absolutely forgiven me of my sins. He has absolutely sanctified me and put me in that place of sanctification. And I will remain in that place of sanctification for eternity. How could I but warm up? It's a radically different perspective, isn't it? I would encourage us all to cry out to God to open our eyes to remind us again of His amazing glory, of His amazing worth, of His amazing beauty to cause our hearts to be inflamed with amazement of what He's accomplished and what He has done. To pray that God will in our lives cause the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And He tells us that all who come to Me, what? He will in no wise, what? Cast out. He won't. He will fulfill His promises in us. And it will be glorious promises fulfilled. Let's buckle our seatbelts. Because that's going to be a ride unlike anything else you've ever experienced. Paul experienced a lot of hatred. We've already seen it, haven't we? He experienced a lot of rejection. He experienced a lot of mocking and ridicule and stoning and beatings and imprisonments. But oh, Paul said in 
you know, this light momentary affliction is nothing compared to the surpassing weight of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And oh, that you and I would, by the Spirit, realize that in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to see, protect us from being deceived in the thinking we see when we really don't. We know that this side of glory we see through a glass dimly. We know that is the case. But we ask you to help us to see clearer and clearer day by day. And that that clarity will be by your Spirit, not merely because we learned something new, but it will be by your Spirit that you will work mightily in us, transforming us as you've promised to do. And that as a result, that our lives will be opening people's eyes so that they will come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, so that they will come by your Spirit from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they will come from their sin and receive forgiveness and be placed in sanctification for your glory. In your name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?